Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Hi, you guys. Welcome back to the I Believe podcast. And I have with me today a guest um, who I've actually had the fortune of meeting in person. And her name is Dr. Starla Allen. She is a board-certified ocularist here in Arizona. I believe one of um, three like offices, maybe, in the entire state of Arizona. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but she lives in Mesa, Arizona, and she has five children with her husband, and she is part of a family of board-certified ocularists. So, Starla, can you tell us a little bit more about your family's background, um, your dad's history with the ocularist profession, and then you know, tell us about how you guys kind of moved into this as a family and what drew you personally to the ocularist field? Yeah, sure. So I am a second-generation ocularist, uh, usually when you find them, what gets people into it, uh, because it's such a very specialized field, is usually it's either it's generational, it's a family type thing. Um, you personally know somebody that's lost an eye or you personally have lost an eye. That's usually how it starts. Um, so for us, my dad, when he was 15, he noticed that his six-week-old sister would barely open her eyes. Like she really would not open up her eyes. And so one day he decided he wanted to see what color her eyes really were. And so he put her underneath a lamp and one eye um, dilated normal with the black pupil. And the other one had like this crystal facet type of thing going on in her pupil area. And he's like, that's not right. So he happened to show it to his dad who happened to have a doctor friend. And so they called him and said what was going on. And the doctor's like, you need to come over right away. Um, so they went and had her checked out and he's like, after he looked at her for quite a while, he's like, I'm sorry to tell you, but I think your daughter has a tumor. Retinoblastoma is what it's known as now. Um, but back then he said, I think she has a tumor, uh, but we need to do a little bit more in depth looking, but it may be that you'll lose your daughter because it may be too late to stop that tumor from entering her brain. So he wanted us, uh, not me, but he wanted the family to quickly take her down to the hospital so that they could do surgery and see if they could save her life. They would have to remove the eye because there was a tumor there, but they wanted to make sure they could save her life. So they did go do that, um, and they were actually able to save her. Uh, it was just like less than half a millimeter away from entering her brain and killing her. But um, my dad ended up saving her life by wanting to see why she wouldn't open her eyes. Um, but because of that, he decided to follow what was going to happen with her. And so they were told by the doctor, now that she didn't have an eye, that um, a few months later, an eye maker is what he knew him as, would be coming into town and he would make her an eye. And they'd contact them when that time was. So it was about four months later or so that this eye maker came into town and 
my dad decided he wanted to go with him. Again, this 15-year-old boy wanted to go with his dad to see what would happen to his sister. Um, and at the time, this was, oh goodness, over 50 years ago or so. But um, at the time, the the guy had a place and he pulled out a drawer full of eyes and he found a blue one that somewhat matched her other eye. And he's like, well, come back in a few hours and I'll have this where it will fit. And um, my dad just kind of looked at his dad and they looked at each other and they're like, how, how, how is this going to work? Like, how's it going to match her eye? How's this going to fit? Well, they came back a few hours later and the guy was whittling away at the eye and um, he ended up putting it in and it just looked awful. It was too big for her socket. Um, it didn't look very good. And and my dad just kind of looked at his dad and said, and of course she's a baby. Yeah, she's a little baby. I mean, she's at this point, she's a tiny baby. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, her, her socket, her anatomy is still growing and everything, but this guy just put an eye that was way too big for the socket in there. The color didn't match or anything. And they're like, are you going to accept this? And the guy's like, well, is it ever going to fit? Will it ever look like her? And he's like, oh, well, she'll eventually grow into it and stuff. And, and there you go. Well, she didn't because because of the how he put the eye in, it actually destroyed her socket because it didn't work with her tissue and the contours and growing with her. And so it destroyed her socket. And so for her, um, and I interviewed her when I was in college to ask her about like what was a changing point in her life. Well, growing up for her, she was so self-conscious. She would never look anybody in the eye. If she turned her head too fast, her eye would pop out. If she sneezed, her eye would pop out because it didn't fit. She constantly had nastiness coming out, as she put it, because, again, it, it wasn't right for her. It didn't fit her anatomy. It didn't fit her socket. And so she would literally cover every mirror in the house that she would come into contact with because she never wanted to look at herself. She wouldn't even look at her family members in the eye. Um, so for her... Later, when my husband, uh, my, my dad was married um, and living life somewhere else, he got a call one day from his dad and said, you'll never believe this, John, but your sister has an eye that actually fits and looks like her. And he's like, no way. So he flew in to see her and then asked the guy where he had trained and asked all these questions. Well, going back to my aunt, I asked her, well, what did that feel like when you actually had an eye that fit? She goes, it changed my entire life. I could all of a sudden look in the mirror and actually look at myself and see myself. Um, I'd actually look people in the eye. I could walk around and not be afraid that I'd have something going on with my face or what was happening to me that I could actually look people in the eye and have some confidence. And she actually started living basically you could say because she actually started doing things outside of her home and becoming her own individual person but she's she still to this day tells you that was the turning point of her life was in seventh grade when she finally had an eye that fit um so yeah back to my dad when he found this guy that um actually fit the eye to her socket and colored it to match her eyes He's like, where did you train? Um, and he had trained by a guy named Lee Allen that lived in Idaho and worked at a hospital. He also did facials and different things. And um, my dad pursued getting trained by him until the guy would actually like let him train and take on the internship to train for it. So that's how he Sounds got like into it. Sounds like he was persistent for sure. He was persistent.
Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like it's such a cool, um, it's such a cool thing to me, like that you guys have such a history like around this and that your dad specifically like was so involved. Like, I mean, obviously it was kind of an accident and just kind of out of sheer curiosity mm-hmm. that he was like, what's wrong with her eyes? Like, what is up with this baby? Um, and I don't know how many siblings, did you say how many siblings he has and kind of um, where he falls so in your family? He, he was the second oldest and he had okay. five siblings. So he had two okay. sisters, but yeah. he was 15 when she was born. When was she born. was born, mm-hmm. yeah. So he was, I mean, obviously he was old enough to be, you know, pretty aware of like a baby should open their eyes. Right. And it should probably look like this. Right. Um, well, that's, I mean, honestly, it it's it's one of those challenging things. And I'm sure you you understand this, but it's like, you wouldn't ask for eye cancer of any kind, no. but at the same time, like what a gift that he then kind of used that as you know, a propelling force to do what he does now. Because I, I know that like, at least in our area and the Valley and, and in the Arizona area, like he's obviously he and you guys as a, a practice have changed so many people's lives for the better, um, which I think is, is fantastic. And obviously I've been a recipient <laughs> of that and I'm really grateful. Um, so, I mean, I'm grateful that you guys do what you do. So let's fast forward. Like your dad started his, uh, his ocularist journey. He became um, a board certified ocularist, which we can kind of talk a little bit more in depth about what that means um, in just a minute. But what drew you specifically? Like your dad was an ocularist and I know that you have two brothers um, I have, who are ocularists. I do. I have, two, I have two brothers that do it with me. I have more brothers, but um, they aren't in this field. They're in an, a different <laughs> type of healing type field. But um, for me, I was always good with artistic type things, seeing colors, being around people, interacting, um, using my hands with things. And so when I was little, my dad asked me once what I wanted to be. And he worked really long hours, wasn't always around. And so I'm like, well, I'm not going to do what you do. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do something that makes, he's like, I, I know what you do makes a difference in people's lives and everything. And I want to do something like that. And I want to do something on my artistic side but I don't want to do what you do because you're never home. (laughs) um, I think he found that kind of fascinating. But um, later when I, when I graduated from college, I mean, he like, okay. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I went to the community college for um, two years down here in Mesa and his office was right across the street. So I was over there all the time, helping him with different things. I might help with lab work. I might help in the front office, just different stuff because he brought us when we were little. I always found it fascinating. Um, there was a little bit that kind of, and for everybody kind of grossed me out at the beginning, but it's something that you just kind of have to get over, um, with time. But again, you know, I just kept telling him, no, I'm not going to do this because I'm going to be a mom. I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that. And I'm going to be able to be around, not work, leave really, really early in the morning and get home really, really late. Um, but once I got out of college, he was still trying to get me to come work with him. He's like, you are so good with this type of thing. Would you at least look into it for a little bit? Like do six months trial period with the internship. And finally I said, I would, um, to get into this field, you first have to have a college degree. You have to find a board certified ocularist that will take you on as an intern. Um, once you find one, you then apply to the society that we belong to, which is the, um, American Society of Ocularists. It's also called ASO. And once you apply to them saying that you would like to, to, be, to be trained as a board certified ocularist and that you have a sponsoring board certified ocularist that will take you on, then you enter into their internship program. It's a five to seven year program. 
It's hands-on the whole time. You have to demonstrate that you are literally hands-on making eyes, learning the, the field, the craft for over 10,000 hours a year. Yeah, and you have to show that. You are learning lab work. Um, you are learning how to craft and form the shapes. You're learning about the anatomy of the socket. You're learning about the muscles and what will help to lift, what will help to raise, what will help with movement. You're learning all sorts of things that just associate with what's happening to this person's face and what's happening with the contours and what will help the tissue to grow naturally and to continue to stimulate like in children. And so it's literally a five to seven year internship that you're doing. So it's the equivalent of basically going like if you're a doctor and you're doing your internship with them as they yeah, call like it. Yeah. School medical school. And, and then beyond where you have the four to six year internship, like, yeah, the internship and the residency, the residency. Um, the things, that's, yeah. that's pretty much the equivalent of what we do. And at the end, I mean, you're taking exams during it. You have level exams every year that you're taking. If you don't pass them, then you have to continue in that until you pass them. You don't advance up in that training. Um, so for some people it can take longer than the seven years. Uh, but you are literally Goodness. sort of like being trained hands-on the entire time with somebody there observing and helping you. Oh, I think it's amazing, like just hearing kind of everything that's involved. Um, and it, obviously it is very, just very far reaching. Like there's so much to cover because there's so many different circumstances you're going to run into as an ocularist. Like you said, you've got the children who have their eye degladed or maybe are never born with an mm -hmm. eye and they need they need something fit um, that will grow with them. And then you've got the people who, you know, have something happen that they lose an eye for one, you know, one reason or another due to trauma or cancer or any of these things that there's, there's so many factors that will play a role, I'm sure in like how the socket has healed and what you have to accommodate for. Um, and I know just from, just from like my experience where I had, you know, I had told you guys that I had had radiation done previously and then my eye was enucleated pretty, like pretty rapidly. Um, I know there was a lot that went into like just the process of making my eye and making sure it was comfortable. And, and, and it's, um, I guess I, I find it kind of, <laughs> kind of humbling, like to think like, there's just so much that goes into it. Like it is not just sitting and painting an eyeball. No, um, no, it's not. There's so much more behind it. Like that's, that's like the, the icing on the cake. <laughs> the rest of it is the cake. Mm -hmm. It's all the inside. Um, well, okay. Thank you for sharing that. And obviously, you know, we talked a little bit about the schooling and the training, um, and you covered that, I feel like really well, but why do you feel like, um, I, I mean, I, I guess I think I've heard from both your office and maybe another office in Arizona, as well as my ocular, uh, my oculoplastic surgeon, that it was important for me to go to uh, a board certified ocularist. So what's important about that distinction and that certification? Um, because I mean, I, I know there are people who make eyes who maybe don't have that um, certification for one reason or, not, or another, um, What's kind of the difference between someone who does and doesn't have the board certification? Um, so there's there's a lot of difference. Um, you know, back when this first started um, with, with eye making, it was just somebody, it used to be that in Germany it was blown gl glass that they would make the eyes with. Oh, and wow. then during World War II, they couldn't get the glass. And so... Mm -hmm. uh, they had to figure out a way to be able to make eyes for these people that were losing their eyes in the war and everything. So it was a war dentist that came up with a way to use um, polymethyl methacrylate. It's acrylic. And um, 
a lot of the things that we use, like with our mold making and the wax and different things are things that you would find in a dental lab type thing. Um, but Mm -hmm. it's different in its own sense. So with a board certified ocularist, like I said, it's five to seven years studying the anatomy of the eye, studying how to work with those muscles, how to stimulate the growth. Like we have babies that are two days old that were born without an eye or that the the doctors had to create their socket. And we create shapes to help stimulate that bone growth, to stimulate that tissue and work with their body so that their face will continue to grow evenly. And we're changing Mm -hmm. out that shape every few weeks so that we're keeping up with that growth and keeping that stimulation. Um, That's something that most people don't even think about that might say, well, I make eyes. Um, there are people well, and, and like with the, sorry, with the experience with your baby sister or your dad's baby sister, like she was just given the, Oh, well it'll fit one day. Like, yeah. and then you guys saw like, you know, from, from years of, of her growing with that in her socket, like that did so much damage to her socket mm-hmm. to not have it start the right size and grow with her. Um, and, you know, continue to be changed out because I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I think that there's some, some statistic or some, some number that guess that guesstimates that a, like a baby grows at the rate of like a killer whale. And like, if they kept growing or if they kept growing the rate they do from, from, um, conception to year one, that they would be larger than a killer whale by year two, <laughs> if they didn't like slow down. Slow down yeah. So like babies change a lot. They change, like, a, they change lot. a lot in the first year. They do. And you've got to keep up with that growth because if you don't, mm-hmm. what happens is, um, part of their face doesn't grow the same or, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes it's a totally blind person that we have to work with both. And so if you're not working with that bone, area and that tissue growth, then just this area stays really, really small and the rest of their face develops, but doesn't develop the way it could. Mm, It just doesn't. It doesn't. And there's some doctors out there that say, you know, oh, your child doesn't have an eye or your child lost their eye. Wait until they're old enough to handle it and take care of it themselves before you go and look for an eye. Don't do that. Because if they had come in sooner, there were so many ways we could have helped their life by working with that socket. But um, again, back to that difference. You have some people out there that might be an ophthalmologist or an optician or somebody and they, uh, not to downsize their profession, but they might dibble dabble or as a hobby, make an eye um, to help out people. But the thing is, is they don't have the training that we have. There are um, eye colleges where they're learning different things and different areas. But when it comes to eye making, they spend like one to two weeks on ocular prosthetics. And then they're like, well, Mm -hmm. I'm trained. I know what to do. And they'll take a few measurements and then they'll send it out to some lab somewhere. And then they'll get it back and they'll say, this is your shape. This is your eye. Here you go. We don't make changes. We don't do anything. This is what you get. And because people don't know the difference, they're like, okay, I guess this is the best it goes. It doesn't fit their anatomy. It doesn't match their eye color. It doesn't help with the the things that are going on with their own particular socket. It doesn't fit them. It's not individual. Mm. And as a board certified ocularist, we make it individual. Every single eye we make is made specifically for that person that is coming in, that we are seeing, that we are visiting with, that we are talking with, that we are finding out what's going on with their situation, what's best for their socket, what what can their socket handle and not handle? You have some people that have lost their eye from gun injuries and they have so much scar tissue. You've got to work with that. 
lots of people have no idea what to do. If it's a board certified ocularis, they have a better chance of working with your tissue in your socket than a person that's had a one to two week training course on, oh, this is an ocular prosthesis. Here you go. Mm-hmm. I mean, these with board certified ocularis, you know that they know what's going on with your socket. They know the warning signs of things to look for where they're like, um, you need to go back and see your doctor because I'm seeing this and there's a possibility of this yeah. or this or this happening not to raise red flags on you, but you need to be aware of what's going on in your socket. So please go see your doctor. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, I mean, to me, that's an important reason for like, just kind of follow-up care. Like you, you know, you don't just, you don't just get the eye once you, once you have the eye made, like I know that I am already set for some follow-ups like with, with you guys to both come in for, for cleaning, to make sure it's still fitting well, make sure it's still feeling good but also so that like the health of the socket can continue to be evaluated. Mm -hmm. Um, So I feel like this is actually a good segue into the next little section of what I wanted to talk about. Um, I know of some patients who historically, at least in our community, they've had a lot of difficulty um, in the past, maybe 10, 15 years ago in getting their ocular prosthesis covered by insurance. And some of them have had the experience that their insurance went as far as to deny all ocular prosthesis options, not even just like, I I know that, um, at least at your office, your office, they explained that, you know, you get the base prosthesis and then there's some upgrades that are like the personalization level, um, to kind of make it more individual and fit better. But, um, I know, I know of a handful of patients in our ocular melanoma community who've had the unfortunate experience of being told no, and have now gone 10 years without an Mm -hmm. eye. Um, what is like, just as a, from, from your perspective, like what are some of the reasons of medical necessity of like why having a prosthetic eye is important if it's at all physically possible? Um, yeah, it's, it's a very, very good question. When a patient comes in and sees us, we, we look at their socket, we check the sensitivity of their socket. We check to make sure that their socket can hold a prosthesis. Um, if it's not able to hold a prosthesis, we try and work with them on either creating a shape and um, putting some pressure in there to help to create that pocket of tissue, that pocket of space to help their socket hold an eye, or helping them work with their surgeon to be able to create that so that there may be that possibility. Now, with insurances, they're a funny little lot. We all know that they don't like to pay for many things. Um, But when when you're looking into a policy, finding out if they put the little disclaimer in there, there are some that specifically do say no prosthetics of any kind or no ocular prosthetics. And it's something you have to work around. So when people call our office and they're like, I have insurance. I don't know if you take it or don't. Um, I don't know if my insurance covers this. I have no idea. Help me. So if it's a con, if it's an insurance that we're contracted with, um, then we already know that they're going to accept the basic eye, what your insurance calls the basic eye, because they don't care about what's going on with your anatomy. They'll only cover like that basic eye. And, um, that's when we work with you about the things that your particular socket might need more that you'd have to pay out of pocket. But insurance companies, if, if we're not contracted with them, and there's quite a few that we're not, um, that's where we help you call and know how to talk to your insurance company, because most of them have no clue what an ocular prosthesis is. They just hear the word word prosthesis and they're thinking, oh, an arm, a leg, something you get from a factory. (laughs) It's like, no, No, this is personal. This is personal. Um, 
And so that's when you have to talk to them and say, this is a, this is a specialty that you do not have a provider for. And I'm trying to get coverage for it. I want to get my coverage. Sometimes they'll do what's called a gap exception. And that's where if you get them to approve this because they do not have a provider for it, which most of them don't because it's so specialized, then um, that getting that gap exception is where they'll reimburse you at their in-network rates minus your deductible or your co-pays or whatever. But you would still end up paying the provider, the ocularist or whoever it is up front because the insurance will only mm-hmm. reimburse you a portion of that. Um, when it comes to medical sense. necessity, it is medically necessary because like with the child, it's helping to develop their face. It's helping to develop that whole growth period and to keep it so that they don't develop other health issues. Um, for a person like you, yourself, that's lost their eye surgically, having a shape in there helps to prevent infections. It helps to prevent discomfort. It helps to prevent other surgeries and complications that can take place because you don't have anything in there. Having that shape in there helps to keep the contours of your lids open. It helps to keep from getting particles and things in there that can cause problems. It helps to keep your socket from contracting and causing other health issues. So there are ways to get around them saying, well, it's not medically necessary. It is. And your doctors can phrase it to where they may be able to help you get that coverage with your insurance, whether it's your ocular plastic surgeon, whether it's your um, ocularist helping you with verbiage on how to say it to them. There are ways to get around that whole, well, it's not medically necessary. You don't need it. It's cosmetic, which is what most insurance mm-hmm. companies try to throw yeah, out at you to begin with. That is definitely the trend of like the conversation around that is, is yeah, it's it's a cosmetic thing and it's like, but it's, but it's not. It's not. <laughs> but it's, it's not, not a cosmetic thing. It's not. Now, if you wanted a specialty no. eye that had all glitter and things like that, like some of the Instagram oh, yeah, people do, sure. that's, that's cosmetic. cosmetic. And it's not necessarily safe for you either because you don't know what those um, materials are made of with the glitter and different mm-hmm. things. Um, but overall, a prosthetic eye, having that in there is medically necessary. Mm-hmm. So for anyone who like might be listening, who maybe has unfortunately had that experience, um, would you say that, you know, is there room for them to potentially see a board certified ocularist and to maybe talk with their surgeon and, and potentially be fit for an eye in the future if they have gone, you know, 10, 15 years without an eye or is, I mean, is it just kind of a case by case? It depends on the case. It really does. But in general, yes, yes. They're probably still a good candidate to have an eye. There are some people because they have not had anything in there that their sockets start to contract and close up. Mm -hmm. It's so there may not be room for an eye, but there are cases where we could work with those people again, where we do what we call, like with the child, we call them graduated conformers because we're gradually building them and helping to stimulate that mm. tissue. Um, there could be adults where they haven't worn anything in so long and they don't know what to do. We can do that same type of thing where we make a gradual, a graduated conformer where we're gradually encouraging that tissue Just kind of, to kind yeah, of develop that. space. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Especially if we're working so with So I guess a what I'm hearing is, yeah, I, I guess I, what I'm hearing is it's not hopeless no. and that if someone has had the unfortunate experience that they should not avoid coming in and talking to someone like like a board certified ocularist and their, their oculoplastic surgeon um, to see if it's possible. Mm-hmm. Because 
just because they had that negative experience before doesn't mean it has to stay that way for the rest of their exactly. life. Exactly. And really, like you said, like there's there's so much around why it's medically necessary and why it can help with, like you said, preventing infection and preventing discomfort over time um, that it's worth pursuing. Right? right. That's what I'm hearing is that it's it's very worth pursuing, even if you don't know the answer right away. Um, so I hope for, for anybody listening in that, and I'm going to share this with one of my friends who is in the Valley and make sure that she makes sure that she at least goes like, Hey, like, just, let's just try, like, just try and see. Um, okay. So let's just talk briefly about, um, kind of some of the things that, that patients can do if they're preparing for a nucleation or if they have recently had a nucleation due to this eye cancer that we deal with here. Um, all of us deal with ocular melanoma. And I know that different types of ocular melanoma exist. And so sometimes you're dealing with one that's on the outside of the eye and you end up with, um, I think that sometimes you can end up with, I can't remember the name of it, but it's, it's where they have to take all evisceration. The and so there's yeah. no more room. It's, for it's an ex- yeah, exoneration is that one. Um, and that's where they might have to take parts of the eyelids. They might have to take a deeper yeah. part of the socket. And that's, that's usually because of the conjunctival melanoma that spreads to the, the rest of mm-hmm. that area. Um, and so more of that, like conjunctival melanoma makes up, I want to say about 2% of the ocular melanoma patient population. So it's, it's kind of really rare within our population. So most of the people who do have their eye enucleated, it's just the eye, the eye orbit. Um, sometimes they might, you know, take portions of the sclera, things like that. But for someone who is preparing for surgery or, um, has recently had surgery, is it advisable, like in your opinion, to visit an ocularist like soon after or leading up to that surgery? Um, and if so, like, why is that important? So there are some or, people you know, that, that have a lot of fears about having this eye removed and what's going to happen afterwards. We do have some patients that will come in and just want to talk to us and find out the process before they actually have their eye removed so that they have a heads up. We'll do those. We'll do those. Um, we'll spend some time with them and talk to them about that and what they could possibly expect to happen afterwards. Um, when somebody does have the surgery, usually your healing time, you're wanting to wait six to eight weeks before you have enough of the swelling down and healing done before we can make a prosthetic for you. Uh, around between four to six weeks is when we like to see people to change out the surgical conformer that may have been put in there. Some doctors don't put conformers in at all. It's like this clear spacer piece. Um, if it's a surgical one, it usually will have like two holes in it and it's very flat. And we like to get the patients in and change that out for something that has a little bit more shape to it, that's more comfortable in their socket, that helps to develop that, that space in there and get them used to having something touching their tissue so that they're more prepared to have an eye made. Um, so usually between four to six weeks is when we'd like to see them to switch out the conformer, but it's generally between six to eight weeks before your socket's healed enough and enough swelling is down before we can start to make an eye. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, and, and I know like obviously that, that healing time, that total healing time of the socket is also going to be different for every mm-hmm. person. And you might have some people who have too much scar tissue and they need the eight weeks or maybe they need eight to 10 weeks. Like, and so I think just, just understanding and just kind of laying it out there that like it is an individual eye made for an individual person with individual circumstances. Like right. there are so many different layers of this is unique to you that we can't necessarily say like, well, you're 100% going to get an eye at the six week or the eight week mark. Right. Even though like, I think we would all love that certainty, but like, that's just not how it works. It doesn't. And, um, and you know, don't get discouraged if you come in and see your board certified ocularist 
for that evaluation and they say, your socket needs more healing time. It's okay. Take the healing time. It will, it will be better. It will be better. Like, because it will fit better and Sometimes better. you still have way, way too much um, swelling going on and fluid in the tissue. And for us to get you the best fit, you want that swelling to come down. Now, when you have it fitted, you're going to develop more space as it is. And we may need to tighten things up and have you come in a little bit later where we call a refit and we, we tighten things up and stuff because you develop more space and there might be some shifting going on. And that's normal too for everybody. Mm -hmm. So if you're one of those people where it doesn't happen, that's okay as well. That's normal too. But yeah. don't get discouraged if they tell you that they can't make you an eye right at eight weeks or you have to wait yeah. a little bit longer because there's a waiting period. You're going to get your eye and it's going to be fabulous for you. They're going to work with your tissue. Well, and I think what I've heard too around the healing time is that sometimes the people who end up waiting longer um, not always, but just generally seem to have less adjusting because they don't have to go back multiple times because they did give their tissue like enough time to fully heal. And so there just wasn't as much adjustments that had to be made. Um, and if it was, it was minor, it was small and like, it just, it just makes it so there's less back and forth. Right. Um, mm -hmm. not, I mean, not that I don't like seeing you guys, but like, I'm grateful that I haven't felt like I needed to come back in every three weeks yeah. because my eye was drooping. I'm like that to me, that says that we did it when it was ready. Right. Um, and I mean, I don't know, Trent could tell me next week, he'd be like, mm, actually, we need to tighten it up a little bit. And I could be like, okay, I believe you. <laughs> but um, generally, like, I think that that's, that's never going to hurt. And, and I think too, when you're in the healing process after nucleation, like, you kind of get into this, this groove of you're just kind of used to the empty socket and, and what's one more week, mm -hmm. right? Like if it's, if it's going to help. Um, what's one more week? Cause you know, you've already done eight weeks. Like what's nine. It's not really that big of a deal in the, in the grand scheme of things. If it's going to be, you know, more comfortable in the long run for sure. Right. Um, okay. So generally, um, and I, I kind of have shared this and I made some Instagram videos that I shared that kind of walk you through, um, at least in your office, you guys have a three day process, mm -hmm. but generally kind of what is the breakdown of how do you, I mean, first we have a socket evaluation. You talked about that, but after that, how do you make the eye? Like, okay. you know, what, um, and, and I guess let's, let's specifically talk about, um, for our community, most of the time our community is going to have an implant or a fat graft. Right. So, um, with those kinds of things in mind, like what's the process or what could the process look like to starting to have that prosthesis made? Okay. And, um, how many days do you think it usually takes like on average? So the method that we use, there's a couple of different eye making methods out there. The one that we use is the modified impression method, MIM. Um, and what we do, and whether it's with a implant or you have a small tysicle eye and we're fitting over that eye, if you have the fat graft, we treat it the same as we would an implant because it's a type of implant. It's just not um, with a foreign object in your body. But what we end up doing is once we know that you've had your evaluation and your socket is ready to move forward, um, then we set you up for what we call the three eye appointments. And what that is, is we generally in our office try and do the eye all in one week. You know, we want to get you started and we want you to be able to have your eye by the end of the week. Sometimes that's not going to work for all people, depending on their socket and what they need done. But generally that's the process. So of those three appointments, the eye appointments, the first appointment you come in and we take an impression of your socket. And that seems to be for most people, the most uncomfortable part. 
you can attest to that Speaking as well. Speaking from mm-hmm. experience, I um, can say yes. It's a little bit different. It's not something that you're used to, but we we put a shape in your socket that has a tube on the end and we inject a cream that solidifies to that shape. It's letting us see what your tissue looks like and it's letting us then later be able to fit to that so that we can make a shape that's going to fit your tissue like a glove does your hand and be able to move with it so that you get the most comfort and the most movement. But we take that impression, um, that process while you're in there, it's about a 10 minute process of being in that seat from start to finish. We let you leave for a little bit while we make a mold and a wax pattern of that impression shape that we just took. Then we change the front of that shape with you there while we're fitting it to get the concurves of your face. So like the opening of your lids, we want to get your upper lid to be open the same as your other side. We're trying to get your lower Mm -hmm. lid to come up so that it matches the side as much. We're trying to get as much comfort in there and to get that feel that everything's nice and secure and that we can also see, we call it the reflex. It's where you're looking straight on with your eyes. And so there's all these different, I guess you could call them mechanical things that we're looking for in the background, but they're all things that we need so that we can make you the best looking eye. Once we have that fitting done Mm -hmm. and we know what the shape and the direction of gaze and everything is that you need, we let you go. That's the end of that appointment. We go and do a bunch of stuff behind the scenes now. We're going to go make another mold. We're going to go put it into acrylic. We're going to go, in our office, we use a painting lens. So we're going to go cut away some of that volume that we had on your eye and create a lens that lets us see the magnification and allows us to put the eye into your socket when we're hand painting it so that we can see what your eye is going to look like when it's done. And you can see the whole process as well. So when you come the second day, we've done all our behind the scenes lab work stuff so that now when you're sitting in that seat with us, we can hand paint the eye to match your companion eye. Or there's some people that may be blind in that other eye or have um, like the eyes a little bit unsightly of itself. And so they want something different. And so they may have brought in a picture of a sibling or a family member or what their eyes looked like before they got the disease or whatever it is that they had. And they want us to match that. So we'll work with you. But what we're also doing is we're putting the eye in from time to time so we can make sure that that gaze is right, that it's going to stay center Mm -hmm. when you're looking at somebody straight on. We're checking to make sure that we're blending the tissue coloring into your tissue so that you don't have any stark contrast. You don't have any cutoff of that white. And people are going, why does your eye look a little different? We're putting veins in there to match your companion eye so that it looks as lifelike as possible. And when we're done, you get to see what it looks like before we've actually done the final processing. You're able to see what you're going to look like and make sure that you're okay with everything that's been done. So that's the second day and that's your longest day. The coloring can take a little bit of a while. Um, that third appointment, when you come back, we've done more behind the scenes things. We've gotten rid of that painting lens and we've sealed um, the paint. And now we've put clear acrylic over the top to seal everything in and put that volume back that we had taken away. And then we've cleaned it all up so that it's safe and comfortable to wear in your socket. And um, it has a nice glow to it and it's luster yeah. so that you have that lifelike looking eye. So when you come in for your third appointment, we teach you how to put it in. 
how to take it out so that you're comfortable with that in case something comes up and you feel like you need to take it out or have to put it back in. Or in case the tissue adjusts and shrinks or you know, right. something happens. So that you know how it's supposed healing to sit. Process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that you know how it's supposed to sit. We make sure everything's right. We make sure there's no slight adjustments that need to be made with that fit because sometimes people develop more space during that fitting time because now their socket's going, oh, there's something here. I can relax. I can, I can chill yeah. out now. And so sometimes you have to do a little bit of adjustments because now your socket's changed a little bit again. doesn't happen all the time during that time, but sometimes that in and out and actually wearing something, your socket adjusts. And so having a board certified ocularist that knows how to work with your anatomy will then know how to make those adjustments and what needs to be done. No, that makes sense. But yeah, you know, we go through how to care for it, what to do, how to adjust for movement if you don't have as much movement as you once thought you would have. You know, we teach you things to compensate so that you can feel more like you again. No, I mean, I have to say I've gotten really comfortable doing like selfie videos, but I'm still, I guess, I guess just like as, as far as my comfort level of like looking at myself and knowing how to compensate for like taking a photo or something like that, that helps. Um, but then when I'm like talking to people, like I, I mean, I'm, you know, two months, I guess into this and I'm still learning like how to make sure that I'm facing the person who I'm talking to so that I don't have one eye that stays looking one way and <laughs> move the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, which always is kind of funny, but what I find the most funny is when my siblings who like know me well, and you would think like being familiar with which side is my blind side that they would not get confused, but they sometimes will think that the one that is the prosthesis and isn't moving is the one that they should be looking at and is the real one. And they're like, wait, hold on. I thought that was the real one. And I'm like, how do you forget? <laughs> it's like, it hasn't changed. Yeah. But um, no, that's, that's interesting though. So as far as kind of general aftercare, um, I've kind of heard kind of mixed, mixed things. I I've heard from some patients who they, they take their eye out all the time. One of them I know is a surfer, so he just doesn't want to lose his $4,000 eye in the ocean. Um, and he wears a conformer while he's surfing, but is there, um, is there a benefit to, you know, generally just leaving the eye alone, um, in the initial kind of getting used to it period and not taking it in and out? Um, or is it just a personal preference for the person? So it depends on the person, but generally what we tell patients, especially if you have a well-fitting eye done by a board-certified ocularist, then usually we tell you leave it in, leave it alone, because the less you're messing with that in and out, in and out, the less you're going to have irritation and discharge, okay? Mm. There are some people that have their natural eyes still there, and for them, it's not comfortable to sleep with that in there to have that shell over the top of their natural eye. Okay, like a and so shell. they'll take it out at nighttime and put it into a container with a little bit of water and have a lid so that it's protected from animals or anybody else that might have wandering hands. Knock um, it over yeah, on the floor. Yeah, so that they can put it back in in the morning. But generally, you're going to leave it in leaving it alone. There's things where you're playing sports, where you're going fishing, where you're out swimming or surfing and things, and we tell you ways to protect yourself. So if you are playing sports... Um, having protective eyewear is important because you don't want to lose that eye. And if somebody happened to elbow you during basketball or something, that really does still hurt, even if it was your natural eye. But if you've got your prosthesis there, you don't want your prosthesis going somewhere. And so having the protective eyewear is important. Skidding along the floor. If you're going swimming or deep deep diving or anything like that, um, individual swimmer goggles are important. 
Because if that current or that water happens to hit your face just right, sometimes it can knock the eye out. And if you have those individual swimmer goggles, it will put it in the goggle so that you can find your eye. Um, Yeah, and you're not digging at the bottom of the ocean hoping you catch it in time. Right. Um, There are some people that when they go for surgery, if they're getting local anesthesia and they're using the face mask, we suggest for those people to remove their eye before they go so that the chemicals don't go up there and do anything to their eye. So you would remove the eye, put a conformer, a clear piece in like with the surgery in there to replace it so that your eye doesn't get lost because a nurse decided, oh, we want to remove your eye during surgery and they put it in a napkin or something and it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Well, I feel like those are some good things. Um, And then like one of the things that I know you guys talked to me about was the importance of lubrication. Mm. So why is that so important? It is Um, so important. Obviously comfort, but like, but I mean, there's a little bit more to it besides just the general comfort of it. Yes. So you have two tear ducts. You have one that's for lubrication and one that's for pain. They have found that when your eye gets damaged, for some reason, the lubricating tear duct does not work as well. You may still have watery eyes or different things like hay fever or whatever is going on. And so you feel, I'm good. I don't need to lubricate. But your eye, if you have a prosthesis in there, your eyelid is going over a hard surface all the time. And so if you do not put some kind of lubrication in there underneath the upper lid, where that lid is going over your eye, um, Mm -hmm. your body produces mucus. And that mucus is because your body's saying, we need lubrication. And so it produces mucus to try and lubricate. But then when it's going over that hard surface and it starts to stick to that that mucus. Kind of backfires on itself. Right, you have this like cycle that just keeps going. And the more irritated it gets, the more discharge you get. And if it gets too dry in there, sometimes you can have a bloody discharge. Not often, does not happen to lots of people, but there is the occasion that you get that. And lubrication is so important. If you never drank water, you wouldn't be able to function. It's the same type of thing for your socket. If you don't get lubrication behind that upper lid, then your body over that rough surface is just going to start to rub you raw and it's awful. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. Um, And that also, I feel like is good information. Like if you do have an overproduction of mucus and you have a prosthesis, then that is an indication of maybe probably one of two things. One, you need to probably have that check to make sure the fit is right. And two, like, are you lubricating enough? Like, do you have enough of like the silop? Is it silopo lubrication? It's a silicone oil. Yeah, the silopo mm-hmm. is a good one. And then I know um, another one that I use that I found is like, I think it's like 20% mineral oil and like part petroleum. Mm-hmm. Um, just those mineral oil kind of gels that I use like at night. Um, but I, I think one of the things that I took away from at least my appointments with you guys was that, you know, I might be given some options of like, these things might work for you, but that generally it was, it was going to be up to me to like practice and learn and figure out, okay, what's going to help? Because I will be totally honest. Like I had a really good, like went home, pickup day was great. And then the next four to five days, I was an emotional roller coaster mess because it was like, I felt like I was looking at, you know, like not looking at a stranger, but it was like going from blonde to brown hair. It was like trying to get used to mm-hmm. it again. Like, oh, I have an eye again. Like I'm trying to be okay with that again because I was so used to it being empty. Um, and then on top of that, like the dryness and just kind of my body adjusting to this foreign object was 
a lot, like personally. And, um, but it took practice. It took trying new different eye drops. And I mean, honestly, cleaning out the shelves for the things that did end up working. I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to grab a bunch of that because that one works. Um, and then just continuing to like be patient with the process because, you know, at five days post or post, um, post pickup day, I guess I was using tons and tons of eye drops all day long. And it was like, I had to go every two to three hours by about five to seven days. It was like, I could just, I could, be okay with morning and night. And I didn't have to do more than just use, you know, a little bit of lubrication, like gel drops throughout the day. And, but it's, it's just been interesting, I think, to see like how, um, how much of a process it is. And, and I think it's, I I guess what I'm trying to to do is make sure that people understand like it is a process and it takes time and, and it's not just a, Oh, you walk out with an eye and suddenly it fits and it feels perfect and nothing is ever going to bother you again. Like there's, there's some level of adjusting. It's also individual. Um, you know, yeah. and I think you were the one who told me too. Like it's it's important to recognize it's a foreign object in your body. Your body is gonna have to adjust, and that takes time. Um, yeah. So you know, and we tell people um, during that week of fitting, we're in and out a lot. So you're gonna have more discharge. Yeah. You're gonna have more irritation because your socket has had all that. Basically, you could say exercise. Um, Mm -hmm. and you have to have that recovery time. And so you will have more discharge during that week and you will have, maybe some people have a little bit of tenderness or soreness and then to all of a sudden have this eye that they haven't had and emotionally have to get used to that psychologically have to get used to it. Um, the adjustment period, it's, it's a lot of stuff to readjust to the eye itself may be totally comfortable and fine, but you looking at yourself in the mirror have to adjust to that. And so we generally tell people, you've got to find out what works for you. You have to find out your level of how much drops do you need each day? What type works better for you? And to give yourself time because time is important and to allow yourself to adjust to it. So don't be taking it, you know, if it seems so odd and different to you, oh, I'm going to take it out and I'm going to go without it. And tomorrow I'm going to put it back in and maybe I'll figure this out again. Leave it in leave it alone and allow yourself time to adjust. It's, you could call it another healing time period basically, but usually we tell people give yourself at least a month to adjust, let your tissue adjust to get used to the idea of having an Mm -hmm. eye again and seeing how you interact with people, seeing what things you might need new tips on or how you're going to have to adjust to your new life. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that's, that's also like, just, I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit too, but like, there's a level, I think of fear and that, that desire for like an answer of like, how's it going to go? And, and it's hard, especially dealing with the kind of cancer that we have to be told like, well, there is no one size fits all answer. Like it's going to be different for every person that can be hard, but it's also really just, I feel like just having that as an answer in and of itself is helpful Mm -hmm. just because I think knowing going into this process, it's going to be different. It's going to be something you need to adjust to. And like you said, there's going to be adjustments, obviously physically, but emotionally, psychologically, like there's so much that goes into this process and to just, like you said, give yourself time and just, um, you know, give yourself grace for kind of all of the feelings that come up with all of this. Right. Right. And know that just because you, had your eye removed or lost your eye or lost your vision does not make you any less of a person. There are so many things you can still do. I mean, we've had patients where their doctors told them they'd never drive. And we're like, yes, you can. You can go drive. (laughs) We have lots of patients that drive. 
or told them that they like could maybe get some sensors yeah. on your car. Right. Like you, to there's be safe, just things like, that you, you have know. to do. Yeah. Uh, we've been, you know, some people are told, oh, you can't be a nurse. Oh, you can't be this. Oh, you can't. Um, excuse me. We have patients that are dentists. We have patients that are doctors. We have patients that are nurses, like ER nurses. We have patients um, that are flight attendants. Unless there is a field that specifically says your vision has to be a certain level in order to perform that specific task, like a pilot. Yeah, yeah like no, pilot. you can't That's do that one. That comes to mind. Or a certain and, type and of maybe machinery like a, a police type. officer yeah. or something. Well, but we have police officers too. So it, okay. it literally just depends on unless there is a unless it's something where literally you could not do that specific thing because of having to have both eyes and the depth perception and everything, do mm. not limit yourself on what you can do because there is so much you can do still, even though you oh, lost I that eye. I feel like that's such an important thing. Such an important thing. And what a good place to, for us to end, I feel like too, is just to, to just recognize, like you said, that like just because you lost an eye doesn't mean you are not able to continue to do the things you love and, um, to, you know, thrive in, in the life that you're living right now. Um, I feel like I, I mean, I, I don't know a ton of people, but I know at least a handful of people who it's been so difficult and so many hard things have happened that, um, I just, I wish that more people kind of could approach it with this, you know, this attitude of like, I'm not going to let this hold me back because I just, I mean, I have, I have eye cancer that I've dealt with and I just don't think it deserves more time of my day. Right. Like I would rather just move, move past it as much as possible, um, at least emotionally and just, you know, not, not give it more than it deserves. Um, so thank you for that. And thank you again for doing this. I felt like this was such a good discussion. I hope it's really helpful for people who are, um, being fit for a prosthesis or who are kind of in that process of just, you know, discussing a nucleation with their surgeon. Um, hopefully this will be something they can turn to. And if you guys are looking in Arizona or in kind of this area around Arizona for a board certified ocularist um, office, Eye Concern is awesome. They have uh, three, no, four, I guess, mm-hmm. if you count your dad, unless he's, is he technically retired? Um, he, technically we, retired. we say he is uh, partially retired <laughs> at this moment. Okay, yeah. partially retired. So three, four board certified ocularists um, from the um, Hadlock family who are excellent. And I mean, all I've, all I've heard from everyone who has been to you guys has been excellent, um, excellent things. So Thanks. just, we appreciate what you guys do and I appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was, it was all right. You fun. guys, we'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on the, I believe podcast brought to you by castle biosciences Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.